Welcome to Podcast Q with Matt Henney. That is me, and I'm recording this from my kitchen in East Point, where today we're learning how to make grilled cheese sandwiches with Ian Aber. <laughs> hey, hello. How are you? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Uh, I'm doing pretty good. I'm still working on perfecting that grilled cheese recipe, but um, you know, we, we've got this whole podcast to figure it out. So. That's right. We're, we're going to get to it. Ian is a comedian, writer, and comedy show producer and a popular fixture at Atlanta Spots, including Laughing Skull Lounge and Urban Tree Cidery. He's also carved out a niche with specialty shows, including my favorite named Sweet Baby Cheeses that mixes grilled cheese and comedy. Thanks for joining me today, Ian. Thank you for having me. Uh, we're, we're, we're separate, but we can talk and look at each other, and that's great. I mean, it's awesome. Yes, yes. Socially distanced, but we can still see each other. It's almost like we're sitting, you know, too close to one another, swapping coronavirus train. <laughs> yeah, there's no better way to spread the coronavirus than laughter, I've realized. Because, like, it's all about getting particulates out into the air, and nothing better to get a particulate out in the air than a hearty laugh that opens up your lungs and just lets the infection. You know how they say laughter is infectious? Literally. It's literally. <laughs> I like that. So so uh, among all of your professional accolades, here's one more to add to the list. You're the first person to make a second appearance on Podcast Q. What? Yes. And that first interview that we did back in 2017 is our second most popular podcast episode ever. Really? Wow. And it's second behind an interview with Keisha Lance Bottoms before she was elected mayor of Atlanta. Right. So really, you're a runner up to Bottoms, which... I'm sure it's got to be a thing that you've worked hard for, right? Right. I got bumped by her one time on City Lights, Lois Writes It. It was, it was something was going on with it, – it was like right after Trump was elected and something was going on with like ICE in the city of Atlanta. So she came in. Lois's producer came out and said, oh, I'm so sorry. Um, you're getting bumped by Mayor Bottoms. I was like, I'm always getting bumped by Bottoms, honey. And like there were like three gay people in the area that just burst out loud. Like all the straight people didn't understand. They didn't get it. And it was just – I was like, that was, uh, I don't know. <laughs> so to be behind bottoms is not a place I'm unused to. So that's great. Uh, that's a good hashtag, bumped by bottoms. Bumped by bottoms, right? So uh, let's talk about the real reason we're here today. Grilled cheese sandwiches. Okay. What is your favorite? Um, I am a uh, I am a traditionalist uh, when it comes to grilled cheese. I don't like where those where people mix cheeses that have different melt points in it. It's like, what are you doing? Do you know what I mean? Like, you know, like you can't put a piece of Gruyere with a piece of brie and a piece and two pieces of bread and then expect things to turn out good. Do you know? When we would do Sweet Baby Jesus, the show was basically we would do stand up comedy, and then on the side of the stage, my husband Payne and his mother, my mother in law, would make grilled cheese sandwiches and just give them out for free. And it was one of the most popular shows I did, obviously, because we were giving away free food. But what we would do is we put up the newest comics, like people who had been maybe a year or less, or like, you know, somebody who's been around but maybe never had a really great set. And then we put them in a room full of like 200 people and they would murder, you know, like you'd feed everybody. They'd all be happy. And then you put up these like kind of newer comics and they would have some of the best sets they've ever had. Um, and it was fun to watch because it was like these are people that I would see do comedy to like three or four people at a bar. And then I'd put them in front of 200 people and they'd have an amazing, you know, it's like it's a very gratifying experience to have that kind of set as a comic, but also to provide that as a producer, you know, is that show uh, I imagine on hold because of the pandemic? Oh, that show's dead. We'll never do that show again. I mean, are you kidding me in a post COVID world? Like you here, let me make you a grilled cheese sandwich. And like, ah, you know, like that's never, let me breathe all over it. Yeah. I don't, it's, I think it's dead for the time being, like maybe in a few years uh, I can bring that back. But we also did that at Relapse Theater uh, over on 14th Street, which is closed down. Um, Relapse was kind of this space where anybody, like the, the guy who owned it was like a yes to anybody who wanted to produce stuff. So a lot of queer producers like me did stuff there. And um, it was just a like kind of, so I'd have to find a new home for it. But, but yeah, I think at this time frame, I don't think like, I just don't think giving away free food is going to help. <laughs> I think it's, I think we're going to have to get to a point where we can breathe on each other before we can give each other grocery sandwiches again. Well, I think that uh, food network ought to do a special like grilled cheese theme on chopped and have you on as a special, as a, as a guest judge. Yeah. I've been trying to figure out how to do it remotely. If maybe I could get people to buy tickets and then I send everyone else, send everyone their ingredients for the group and we make the sandwiches together. As the show happens, maybe I don't know. <laughs> 
it was a really fun show. And we served over 2,000 grilled cheese sandwiches over the course of the – we did maybe 10 shows total. You said 2,000? Um, 2,000, yeah. Wow. That we made that me and my me and Payne and his mom would make together, like you know the front. So the Friday that that show happened, I would go buy the cheapest ingredients I could buy. I would buy day old bread. I'd buy cheese from Aldi, butter from Aldi, um, and then we would spend the afternoon assembling the sandwiches. So it was like that show all. It would be like an all day affair, like an eight eight hour eight hour day basically kind of putting everything together and with day old <laughs> bread and Aldi cheese. That, that, I'm telling you the day old bread made a difference. Like we, we one time had to buy new like date, like bread from the grocery store and not from like the bread store. And it was like, the, the, the they just weren't as good. They just, I don't know. There's something about like a, like that, that bread that I don't know. Do you ever go to the bread store? You're a bread store person. I'm a, I'm a big fan of the bread store. I'm, I'm not, I, I've never been to a bread store. If you're spending more than 35 cents on a loaf of bread, you are being ripped off you can just go to the bread store and, you know it's sure it's got a little mold on it but that's just that's just just scrape it off right it's just seasoning yeah exactly <laughs> just scrape it just scrape it off <laughs> i do get the kroger brand bread they have some really good bread at kroger the oh, yeah. private selection it's like wide cut it's thick it's really good and it's it's not 35 cents but it's pretty inexpensive do you remember though back in the day when generic food literally was in a black and white container like because like everybody has store brands now like you said private selection it sounds just as good as do you know what i mean it's really kroger brand but but back in the day like i remember going to the grocery store with my mom and there was a the bottom shelf was all like it was all black and white so it would be like you know like cornflakes and it would just be a white box with the word cornflakes no picture no extra anything <laughs> Oh, nice. Yeah, store brands have gotten kind of fancy. Oh, I love I go to Aldi and Aldi it's nothing but store brand. I mean, they have some they have some regular brands. Um but yeah, I'm a fan. Our, the Aldi over my my house just closed to remodel. So it's gotten fancy. They've decided to widen the aisles and whatnot. <laughs> my neighbor is all about Aldi's. So yeah. that she sort of introduced me to it. It's not bad. Uh, well, all right. So here we are on a podcast, but you know, podcasts are just trash. But here we are, and you've launched a new one, right? Tell tell me about straight people. A minor look at the majority. This is my third relaunch of this podcast. I had a I had a straight producer, um, and we made about fifty five episodes, and then he lost the episode somehow. Even though data is so cheap, I know, right? I and I and then so I rebooted it last year, right before COVID. So like basically the last half of twenty nineteen, I put out another maybe like 30 or 40 episodes, 30 episodes, I think. And I was doing in-person interviews in my house and then COVID started and I just can't, I like every conversation I've had that I've tried to do like a remote podcast, I just can't, but straight people basically is a half hour interview format podcast where I interview people about their sexuality. So it is called straight people. Um, but I interview a lot of straight people and queer people. And the, what I do is with straight people, I talk to them about who was the first queer person they knew. When did they know what gay was? Like when you're a straight person, you're just born straight and you never think about it at all, you know, like so lucky for them or whatever. Straight, but Privilege, I think. Yeah, there you go. Straight, exactly. Straight privilege. And, and then you don't ever have an, you, as a straight person, you don't ever realize you're straight, but you do discover what gay is and you so the context of i'm straight and that's gay and what i find very interesting is that the people that i've interviewed who are straight and were had no gay people in their lives were the ones who grew up homophobic and and had to like learn how to be around gay people or or they grew up thinking one thing about gay people and then they met one gay person and that changed their life you know their mind forever and they love gay people or they grew up around gay people all their life and they just never had a problem with it and it's so weird how like just a little thing like inclusion and visibility uh makes us like not quite as formidable or strange and it's it's like i've done so many interviews now where it's like i know if you if you said you grew up around gay people i know what your attitude is going to be immediately it's going to be like oh yeah it's no big deal you know and it's just i think it's just a it sort of it warms my heart because it does really mean that as generations go on gay will be less of a stigma you know i mean I'm from the age of like growing up where it had just stopped being a mental illness within my lifetime. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, I don't know. Did you see the Netflix uh, boys in the band? Have you watched it yet? 
they did, a, they did a remake of it um and it feels so dated it feels so dated because it's it takes place in 1968 so the year before stonewall and like five years before the uh they took uh homosexuality um it's and said it wasn't a mental illness they voted it out and they took it out of the list of the all the mental illnesses in the united states and because uh, the whole thing is the whole conceit is, is how much they all hate it themselves do you know what i mean it's like and it, and it really does touch upon how they uh it's all these essentially white gay men with very few problems other than um the the stigma of gayness you know and like now that's like it's almost like it's almost antiquated to think about it like that because most most portrayal of gayness in in television and stuff is that being gay is no different than anything else you know what i mean so they don't have those problems and so it's like you know gay teenagers don't think about gayness as a mental illness quite the same way that we grew up with it you know it's like you know there's some something something that could be shocked out of us or or um counseled out of us you know Oh no, absolutely. When I was growing up, it was definitely not a love Simon sort of sort of world. So Right. right? Oh, don't get me started on old Love Simon. Jeez, that kid. I always thought the black kid in Love Simon, they have, there's an effeminate out black character that mm-hmm. he does, that he's afraid of. And it's like that's the person we should be watching the movie about, not this closeted, you know, like Hollywood attractive. Oh, you know, oh, is he going to be able to be happy or not? It's like, yeah, when he gets to college, he's going to fuck everybody. But that out black kid who's in a predominantly white school. What is his story? You know what I mean? Right, right. Although you know, I will say when I was in high school, uh, we had an out white kid and I was just as just as afraid of him. Oh, absolutely. That, when you're, that, when you're in the closet, there's nothing more terrifying than a comfort, somebody who's comfortable with their sexuality. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think I was there for a while. I, I always knew I was gay, like <laughs> super early. I just didn't act on it. You know what I mean? It was just like, I didn't act on it and tried to hide the, and my parents were real big on like, I was very effeminate acting as a child, which I was just like a child. Like I was high. I had a high pitched voice and waved my hands around, which pretty much describes most children. But like my parents were always trying to correct my behavior and, you know, don't act like that. Don't act this way. You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, a lot of wasted time. They wasted a lot of time, you know? (laughs) Well, so speaking of trash and podcasts, and trashy podcast joe rogan just moved his wildly popular show over to spotify and in the process that brought a lot of renewed attention on some transphobic statements he's made and and some of the wingnut conspiracy theorist guests he's had on for interviews so that made me think about what how do you walk that line between funny and offensive and funny and sort of you know giving voice to crazy untrue sort of shit my personal belief is that comedy should be inclusive. So it like, I don't know if there's anything I do in my own act that would be offensive. It would be offensive to maybe like a fundamentalist Christian or, you know what I mean? I don't, I'm not even really political, but I am, I do talk about religion a lot because I was raised Catholic and religion was very important. It was a very important tool to, uh, to punish me for being gay. Do you know what I mean? Like, but I think like with Joe Rogan, well, first of all, God bless Joe Rogan. Okay, the HGH and the um, and the fucking replacement therapy hormones and testosterone have run their course in that sad little man. Okay, because there was a point where he was like buff and whatever, but that stuff has diminishing returns. And so, like, I haven't, I don't watch my, I have a libertarian brother, so I don't have to watch the Joe Rogan podcast. I just have him tell me about it a little bit at a time every time we talk. Um, so. I watched the video the other day of him talking to my, did you see the one where Miley Cyrus is on? So Miley Cyrus is on and he's showing her, she's a super fan of RuPaul's Drag Race, right? Which, you know, God love her for it. But she, he's showing her clips of RuPaul's Drag Race and they're, and it's Kennedy Davenport doing a death drop and then somebody else doing a death drop. And Joe Rogan's like, isn't it just the same thing with them? It's always the same thing. And she goes, yeah, yeah, that's what I think when I listen to your podcast. It's just the same thing. It's just the same thing. And she just fucking, I mean, I couldn't, I just stood up and was like, what? Because I watched that clip and I was like, yes, bitch, exactly. But, and that's what it is with Joe. Joe's like, 
whatever you are, he's going to needle you and try to get that, you know, that, that thing out of you. So if I'm a gay comic, he's going to be like, Oh, well, you know, you know, you don't like trans people though. Right. Or whatever it is. Um, and I think that that's just that contrarian like thing that straight guys get to do, you know, like, uh, you know, Oh, I, I know you have a belief system, but let me just for a minute dismantle it in front of you, like just for fun, you know? And I don't know anything. I, I don't know the specific transphobic things that he said, but I think that like, there's a, there's a real thread in comedy of like straight guys think that they have the, what's the word I'm looking for? The agency to talk about anything. So like, you know, if you're a straight guy who has had any experience with a trans person, then you have agency to say whatever you want. You know what I mean? And I think that good comics figure out whether they have something to say about trans issues or trans people in general and then write their jokes. You know what I'm saying? So, and then, and then that case, usually it's mostly pro trans, you know, it's like a pro trans situation. I don't talk about trans people a lot in my act because I don't think it's funny. I don't, there's nothing funny about, you know what I'm saying? So it's like, but I also don't sort of talk about them in, in, in terms of advocacy because I, there are trans comics in Atlanta. It'd be like, you know, if, if I'm, if I don't publish a, a, a website in a magazine and then I decide, Oh, I'm going to talk on behalf of all magazine publishers or whatever, you know what I'm saying? But yeah, I think that Joe Rogan and they're sort of like that, the maleness of stand up, the straight maleness of stand up. you, you wade too far into those waters and it, it always goes in the terms of transphobia, homophobia, misogyny. Those are all, that's like a sister. That's the triad of, you know what I mean? And, and uh, I feel like that more that what's happening now is that mainstream comedy is more about being inclusive than being outrageous. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's like it's not about, you know, Bill Burr being like, I don't understand these trans people. It's more about oh, my sister's trans. Let me tell you some jokes from the perspective of somebody who knows somebody who's trans. You know what I mean? I think that's what's happening it's definitely what I see more of. And, and you're right. That change has been pretty interesting to see because I remember going to see Joe Rogan. You know, I, I first saw him in the late 90s when he was on news radio and then went to see him uh, live. I think it was, it was either here in Atlanta or it was in Houston. Yeah. And uh, I mean, he was very much, you know, this was 20 years ago as well, but he was very much that old school sort of of comedy to make fun of people rather than approach it from finding the humor and the inclusivity. Absolutely. Well, and there's like, you know, not to pick on anybody, but there's like out, there's comics who are out now that were in the closet in the nineties that if you watch the rack now, they really don't, touch too much on gayness at all but back in the 90s they would do jokes that were sort of like making fun of gay people where i there was one particular and i won't name the comic because i really do like him but it, the idea is is that in the 90s the material he was doing as a closeted gay man incredibly reductive under the modern eye but that's the problem it's like i lived in the 90s so when people talk about oh it's so homophobic and da 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 I, we i didn't notice I didn't, you know what I mean? I, I would, I had it happen. I experienced homophobia, of course, but like, I didn't like, you know, somebody was telling me, oh, I can't watch Friends. It's too homophobic. And I'm like, mm, it's what it is, is dated. It's not, it's, it was never intentionally. They included that lesbian couple because they thought they were being inclusive. Now they wrote a bunch of stereotypical lesbian jokes about them, but at the time that's all they knew to do. So it's like, you know, it's like the same thing. It's like, if you ever talk to somebody who hates will and grace, what they hate about will and grace is how unrealistic it is. And I'm like, it is a sitcom on television. Do you know? Like, that's the point. That's the, you know, I don't know. It's just funny to me. Cause it's like, there, there are definitely things to get mad about. Jokes aren't always on the top of my list. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like some, so sometimes they, they trot out like, when they did the thing with Kevin Hart and all of his tweets, it's like those he apologized for that. But also, why are we not talking about black queer comics? Why are we talking about a black straight comic? Some shit he said 10 years ago when you most people, most, most queer people I know couldn't name five queer comics of color. Do you know what I'm saying? But they all can get mad about Kevin Hart. And it's like, well, you know, we've got. I, I could name like 50 queer uh, people of color doing stand-up comedy that have way more to say than Kevin Hart ever is going to have to say about anything about the gay experience. Do you know what I'm saying? It's just like, and I guess it's because this is the platform, but you know, he has that platform, but I don't know. That's what I try to do is like when I, something offends me, I try to learn more about it. Yeah. It's interesting. You talked about the, the, the fact that what was 
viewed as inclusive years or decades ago, you know, doesn't sort of doesn't wear well today. And uh, I had the same experience recently. I was couldn't fall asleep one night because I was hopped up on allergy drugs and uh, so I was <laughs> watch. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, sex in the city. Let me watch that for, I ended up watching it for like two hours in the middle of the night. And uh, I remember how much I loved that show and how progressive I thought it was. And, you know, in 20 years ago when it came out, but one of the episodes um, was all about uh, uh, lesbian and Charlotte toying with be- the idea of being a lesbian which was very inclusive, especially 20 years ago, but just the way they presented it and some of the writing and the humor, uh, just like does not translate well now in, in 2020, it was that kind of stuck with me is how, um, how off it seemed today versus 20 years ago. Absolutely. Well, and that show too, it's like, there's a, uh, Samantha is like a gentrifier, right? So they don't talk about it like that because she's living in the meatpacking district. So yeah. she's a gentrifier. She is a straight gentrifier who watches where the gay people go and then she moves there. And the minute she moves there, and the, there's an episode about her moving into some warehouse. The minute she moves there, she's pissed off about the trans sex workers right. whose neighborhood that was in the, the first in the first place. And they and they make it all cute because they have a barbecue at the end of the episode. But they really set up this very realistic big issue that's still happening in cities like new york where it's like i don't know it's just it's very funny to me because you're absolutely right um the sex in the city at the time was incredibly provocative right and now that provocativeness almost seems like the stereotypes and the datedness and yeah it's it's yeah it's pretty funny a lot of shows like that just don't stand the especially like that like sort of like right before and right after 9-11 the there was a sort of a flavor of like real flirting with gayness and queerness you know what i mean and then it like it like like dried up again i don't know i feel like it you know what i mean it's like it's like that not that 9-11 had anything to do with queer people but it made us more conservative in general i think just for a little while like as a society i think we would and then like by the mid 2000s once once flavor of love dropped on vh1 i think we went back into like a it's a wackadoo world we live in woo <laughs> well, you know, 2020, we're, we're, it's definitely not a wackadoo world, or maybe it's a wackadoo world in a very different yeah, way. Whack me in the face with a hatchet when wake me when it's done. Yeah, exactly. 2020 is, I, I don't know. I was, I've been at a point recently where I'm like, I don't know if I can take one more thing. Do you know what I mean? Like, I, I've had personal stuff. My, I had a dog pass away this year. Um, you know, stand-up comedy is a career that i'm trying to pursue and it is essentially dead i mean like in terms of like live comedy it, it's not back where it needs to be uh my husband was in and out of the hospital and then like after all that and then plus everything else that's going on in the country and then i woke up uh last friday morning and the first thing i saw when i looked at my phone was that donald trump had covid and uh i laughed for like a half an hour, I just laughed and laughed because I was really like, if there's just one more thing happens, one more bad thing, and then you know, Ruth Gator, Gator or Bader Ginsburg, like there's just, just like all of these like ticks of like, I can't take it, I'm doing the best I can, I'm holding on, and I just not that I wish ill on Donald Trump per se in a physical sense, um, but it just it warmed my cackles uh, to to know that this no mask wearing like I have been I have been avoiding live large groups and as a comic that's the best you can hope for is to perform for large groups and here is the president of the United States going and not wearing masks and all this stuff and it just feels so unfair so you know what I mean and then for him to actually get COVID I'm like oh okay just the just universe just for a moment you know and, and sure he's he got the kind of COVID that makes you feel better than you have in 20 years he got that version of it apparently you know what i mean like my parents are like oh we're afraid of getting covid i'm like well apparently it's a it's a fountain of youth you'll feel 20 years you know, well uh, and my friend who's a doctor told me oh they just pumped him full of steroids that's why he feels so great right right yeah well but yeah it's 2020 is if i feel like it's a crucible right whatever you are you're going to come out more that way in, after 2020. So if like, if you're somebody who like really is in the pursuit of being a better person, then you've used this time to do that for yourself. If you're somebody who's like, you know, you're just looking for an excuse to say that the war, you know, like, Oh, I, I've given up. Then 2020 is going to give you a hundred reasons to give up and to, you know, oh, I can't pursue my dreams because 2020, you know what I mean? It's like, and I think that if we can get to 2021, 
hopefully all of us will have learned something about ourselves and other people. You know what I mean? Like you said, if we get to 2021, do you have, you have, well, I don't, I don't, think, it's guaranteed, it. I don't think it's guaranteed that we're all going to make it. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I mean, I hope I make it. I really do. I'm planning on it. I don't have any, but um, I, I, what I'm saying is, I guess when I say, if we make it to 21, like if 2021 is the end of it, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Do you know what I mean? If we get back to nor- some form of normalcy in 2021, my hope is that everyone will come out of it like maybe a little kinder, uh, maybe a little tougher. You know what I mean? Maybe maybe not so quick to cancel everybody. That you know what I'm saying? It's like, right. but I mean, maybe that's maybe that's me just trying to you know put put order on something that's just chaotic. You know? Well, how did when when things are so real and raw with the social justice movement, the pandemic, even politics. How do you, how do you find humor in these times? Um, it's like I said, you gotta, you gotta laugh when the news comes in. <laughs> um, I, I would say that it's hard because like, especially, especially like things like social justice, I find it very hard to, to make light of that because it's such a serious issue. Um, and it's something that like, I'm 47 and I'm still learning about the depths in which white people have taken advantage of black people historically and currently. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's really hard for me to say, oh, I'm going to write jokes about that. But there are comics in our scene who write amazing material about it. Uh, there's a guy, Voss Sanchez. He's one of my favorite comics. He's on Cobra. He's the he's the shopkeep on Cobra Kai. I don't know if you've seen Cobra Kai or not, but he's yeah. he's a local Atlanta comic, super funny guy. But he has this great bit about he went on the march, and he's a big, big guy. And they did a march from, like, one location to the next. And he's, like, looking around. It's all skinny people. He's like, I'm going to drop. It's, like, hot out here. And then they did a moment of silence for somebody – for one of the, the people who've been, who've been killed. And they did like a, they got, they got on their knees for eight minutes and he does this whole bit about as a fat person, the effort it takes to just get on your knees and then like not to disturb. He doesn't want to disturb anything that's going on. So he's there as this fat person trying to kneel. And it's just, to me, it's like hysterical, but he does it with a complete respect for the movement. So he's not making fun of Black Lives Matter. He's not making fun of black people. He's not making fun of anything that's like, you you know, about the police state that we live in. He's making fun of the fact that like, in order to participate, he has to reckon with his own body, you know? And it's like, I, I wish I could do that. I honestly wish I could. But what I say is you have to, for me, I have to go find stuff to like check out into, you know what I mean? So um, for humor, you know, I go, I've been watching old sitcoms cause I'm trying to, I'm trying to write my own TV pilots now. Um, and I'm sort of studying the, um, the sitcoms that I grew up on, like the, I love Lucy's and Dick Van Dyke's and that kind of stuff. Um, I think you have to seek it out. Like you really have to, so you have to get off Twitter. You have to get out, like go find something other than what normally feeds your, um, your humor, you know, it's like, go read those, you know, stupid Buzzfeed articles, do whatever it is that you can do. Take that time every day to find something to make you laugh. I think is very important, but, um, but yeah, sometimes it's hard. Sometimes you just can't, you know, there's a lot of things about 2020 that I have not been able to like, just go, Oh yeah, this is going to be funny. But then, you know what, in five years I might go, pow, I got it. You know, this is how you make that. And that's, that's really how I am. I, most of the stuff that I talk about that has anything to do with trauma. Um, it's because, the only reason I can talk about it is because I've done the work internally before I ever mentioned it on stage to get to a place where I can look at it uh, and it doesn't hurt anymore. You know, right. you know, that's really important. Well, I think your advice to get off Twitter is just good sound advice. Yeah. Regardless. I mean, just even for a day, like a day, not, I, I block out a few hours every day where I don't look at anything. And, uh, I'm, you know, sometimes that three hours is I'm napping. Sometimes it's I'm cooking or whatever it is, but sometimes I just, I just turn everything off or put my phone down, turn off my TV, turn off my laptop and I'll put some music on or whatever it is just to give myself that time every day. I mean, it's something I used to never do and never thought I needed. Um, and it really, really helps me. Like sometimes it's, I do a little yoga, you know, it's like whatever it is, but it really helps me. Cause then when I go back and plug in, and look at everything. Um, I don't take it quite as seriously. I find when I don't take breaks, I get, I start to get upset about what I'm looking at much more um, in terms of like, you know, the, like there, <laughs> we live in a world that, you know, we, we're not going 24 hours without some kind of extra news. That's going to like, you know, either 
you know, terrify us if you're on the left or embolden you to be even more, you know, fucking gun nut crazy if you're on the right or whatever. You know what I mean? And so I, until that world changes, you gotta, you have to have your own strategies, you know, in, ter- in, in terms of health and mental health. Oh, oh, definitely. I, I, I learned that early on in the pandemic. I'm, I, I, you know, I tell people like I, I'm living my life more day to day now than I ever have before. And I mean, you definitely need to uh, take some time out to just like calm your calm yourself, clear your head. It's so funny too, like that we have this like so March. How long ago does March feel? Like we're what? What is this right now? October, March, the, the beginning of the pandemic. The way you said it, you remember? Remember the olden times of the pandemic? Do you remember when like everyone was like, "Let's make bread"? Do you know what I mean? And it's like now it's like let's raise up and start a militia, you know? And so I don't know. I want to go back to that quaint time of where we couldn't find yeast, you know? Yeah. Let me tell you though, my husband, God love him, but that motherfucker can't make bread for shit. I have eaten the worst bread. In the last six months, sour ass. He has a sourdough. Oh, oh. yeah! Like, like I had, I had to tell him that like, loaf from the bakery, please. Day old, thirty-five. Yeah, there loaf. you go. Yeah, exactly. Well, I told him the other day. I was like, "Look, I can pretend to like your bread or your mother. You got to pick, okay? Because I can't. I'm not Meryl Streep over here, okay? Can't be doing both. So you've has been in comedy now for a decade. Is that right? Oh, don't say it like that. It makes me feel like I'm not very successful. But yes, um, this is my ninth year. Um, and we're not going to count 2020. So next year is going to be my ninth year as well. Um, but yeah, I basically almost a decade. So I, I did my first open mic on October or yeah, October 11th, 2011. So next year, so not, this is my ninth year. So, and that was sort of like a lark. Like I had, I had my people telling me how funny I was all the time and it irritated the fuck out of it. Like I'd be at work surrounded by straight people, which there's nothing funny about that. Right. And they'd be like, Oh, you're hilarious. And I'd be like, just do your job. You know what I mean? Don't tell me how funny I am. Do your job. You know? And then one day I finally was like, you know what? I'm going to do stand. I'm going to see about it. And the minute I got a laugh, I was like, oh, 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 you know, like, because my my sense of humor has always worked against me because I'm the person that like will roll their eyes when somebody says something stupid um, or I have a smart mouth comment that I can't control coming out my mouth. I can't tell you how many promotions and things that worked that I didn't get because I pissed off the wrong person um, over my my professional career, um, which fuck all those people. Fuck. If you're listening to this, fuck you, you fucking straight assholes. Fuck. Um, <laughs> I always wanted to write a gay version of nine to five. I've always that's my dream. The, oh, yeah. Yeah. It's going to be. So if it's a gay version of nine to five, I imagine it's probably either set in a real estate office or like the or like the management office of an apartment complex. Right. I didn't think about that. But damn, you're right. We homosexuals have are litter. The service industry. We the, the service industry is riddled with homosexuality. Be it be it hotel, apartment, real like if there is a service, there's a gay person there being like, Can I help you with that? That's why I think like the first like they like if you ever watch any of the history of comedy, it's all like comedy was invaded by straight men. And when the first straight man got up and said, bleh, bleh, bleh. and that's because straight men had all the fucking privilege, right? So like stand-up comedy is the most superfluous of all the art forms, right? So like the that we're only now in a in a in a century where women and gay people and, and non-traditional cisgendered heterosexual men even get an opportunity to do it. And they're over here like we invented it. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Shit. There was some queen waiting on some like some queen slave in fucking Rome or Greece or whatever commenting on all the fucking straight people. And that's the first stand up comic was sitting there being like nah, 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 over in the corner. And so I always think that like stand up, like like making fun of stuff, taking up bad thing and making it funny is a quintessential queer uh quality like we are we make lemonade out of lemons all fucking day you know what i mean like uh and and i and that's why i think that like so many like gay men are not necessarily super supportive of stand-up comedy because they all think they're stand-up comics because like every gay man is the funniest person all their straight friends now in most cases you know what i'm saying and we when we talked about that in in 2017 you talked about how gays oh am i not allowed to talk about things twice no, 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 
No, I was. Why'd you have me on? I'm just That was segue. I was doing a segue. I'm just uh, And that you said gays can make for a tough audience. Oh, uh, sure. I believe you were like, quote, icy, honey. And uh, <laughs> that, that gays can judge uh, are so good at judging that they make for a hard audience. Is that still the case? I think so. I, and I say that with love. And I say that as an icy, judgmental gay person. I want to be clear about that. And I think that may not have translated in the first time I've ever said that, is that I'm that person too. When I watch, like, there are comics in Atlanta who tell me that they watch my face while other people are on stage to see whether somebody's really funny or not. And I'm like, that's not, first of all, that's not fair because I'm not, I'm not here to be like, but you, but that's, but that's who gay people are. When I used to do, um, we did an open mic at uh, the hideaway and the gay audience was like, you either got nothing like nothing um, because it wasn't funny or you got like a little bit of a laugh if it was funny. And if it was even slightly offensive, they had the whole room would turn on you. So it was like, I didn't have to like one of the things that I, that I always felt like I was doing as a comic when I first started in Atlanta is that I was policing the homophobia in the scene somehow, or I was responsible for that. And the minute hot mic started, I was like, Oh, the audience has it now. Like, you know, if you come up here and try to run your homophobic bullshit on this audience, they're going to be like, shut the fuck up, Mary. You know what I mean? Like it's, it is not like they were not shy about it. And, and now they're running another mic at hideaway and it's a straight guy who's running it. Right. But it's the gay it's the gay people who were there when I ran mine who were like, yeah, we want the mic back. And so now it's the back of the room. So I don't have to do any. I mean, I show up and just do the mic and have a ball. Um, but the back of the room, if they hear something they don't like, they're like being real lippy about it. And it's like I think that I almost feel like that comedy like that needs to happen in a gay bar. So straight people can go and understand like there's a cost to your dumb joke. You know what I mean? Like maybe you won't get a clap back in a straight room, but if you're in a gay friendly room, the gay people are going to tell you exactly what they think you do. And I wish there were more, I honestly wish that there were more trans audience members like that who were giving that kind of feedback. Cause I feel like the trans jokes in Atlanta, it's like the same offenders doing the same tired jokes that they've been doing since I started. And I, you know, I couldn't even go to them one more time and be like, please, you know, don't do that. I just don't book those people. You know what I mean? But it's like, but if there were more queer comics or, or trans comics, like basically giving them that instant feedback, they stop doing the jokes because if the, if the, if the comics don't think it's funny and the audience doesn't laugh, there's no, there's no reward for a comic to tell that joke unless they only get off on upsetting people, which there are straight comics that <laughs> like that they're, they're, they're doing standup, but they're in it for the wrong reason. They're in it for the shock reason, the, you know, provocative. They don't really care about the laughs as much as just a reaction, you know? Well, does that speak to how important it is to have queer representation in comedy? Uh, yeah, I, I'm really just now sort of like the, it's not just queer representation. It's like we need queer representation everywhere. So as important as it is to have queer people on stage, it doesn't matter if we're only ever performing to straight people in the audience. Right. And that's what was really happening when I first started. It was like when I started, one of the straight comics told me to start a gay show because I was part of the gay scene. And I really believe that. I don't know. And and I was like me, it was like me and like Brent Starr were the gay scene, I guess. I don't know. But then I started just doing, I started producing regular shows in regular venues. Uh, so not in a gay bar and not marketed directly to gay people and not with a name like, you know, like it's felching funny night or it's like for fisting funny or we're, we're loud and gay and nah, whatever. Right. So I just would do regular. So then gay people would start coming to those shows. So the audience would be like, 80% straight, 20% gay or whatever, whatever the mix was. And then that's when I realized I was like, Oh, I don't need an audience full of gay people. I need an audience that looks like Atlanta. So if I can get the audience to be a representation racially and um, sexual identity and gender identity to look and, and more like Atlanta and be like the Atlanta that I want to interact with, then I don't care about hundred percent gay audience. You know, and not that I don't like performing in front of them. I just they're very hard to market and then and then also to please. I would spend more to get them to come and then not be able to guarantee that they'd enjoy what they would. You know what I'm saying? But if they come to a comedy show, then they're a they are a comedy fan who is queer. And that's where the representation matters. Like that queer people are not looking at comedy and seeing it as homophobic. Like um, 
I can tell a story about Grant Henry. Uh, he wouldn't mind uh, in church. It's open. Go to church. But I was I did a show at church, and we're trying to get it going again eventually um, when you know more indoor stuffs happening. But we he he wanted to do a like a trial run. He didn't think comedy would be a good fit for church. And he came to the first show and I booked the show, hosted the show and did the whole thing. And at the end of the show, he was like, this isn't the stand-up comedy I remember from the nineties and whatever this, this, I booked an inclusive lineup. I booked queer people. I booked straight people who don't tell offensive jokes. You know what I mean? And he was like, he changed his mind about standup. I wish that more queer people would do that. You know what I'm saying? Because that's where it's going to like we can have queer um, comics all day long. But if we don't have a queer base audience to lift those people up, then it's, you know, it's then it's then I'm only relying on straight people, uh, which, you know, how terrifying is that? To only <laughs> <laughs> No, but I think like representation definitely matters on the stage. But what we have now is we have representation. There are multiple queer Comics. There are multiple comedy, uh, queer comedy producers who are producing shows that all have queer audiences now as part of the main audience. And that's a huge difference between 2017. So just in the last two years, that's changed. The, the landscape changed. Well, and you book a, a ton of talent and share stage with, with them as well. Are there up and coming comedians, queer or otherwise, that should be on our radar? Absolutely. And like some of these people I'm saying are up and coming who have been around for like six years. So like uh, Matthew English deserves a lot of attention. He's been killing it. Um, he has some of the like he has some bits that are like, I don't know, he's he has a lot of he's super funny, very um, uh, charismatic and he's young and cute for those of you that that matters. But um, Powell Mansfield also very funny, super cute and killing it. He's been killing it all over town. Uh, Julie Maritek is a newer comic though she's probably been around for two or three years now um, but she also produces shows so she does a show at like java cats um she produces a uh we do a we've been doing a friday show at pond city market there's like an outdoor amphitheater and one friday i do it the other friday julie does it we kind of swap back and forth um there's this uh queer couple douglas and dewey who are out in um hapeville um who are a uh a couple of drag queens who were in New York for a while and excuse me. And they've just moved to town and they've been doing a queer show, like a queer comedy show in Hapeville and they do drag, like drag bingo. You should, you would love them. They're hilarious. Um, her drag name, I think is uh, all of Doug does drag is all of the nightlife. And she's been on, we do that ABCD show, April less comedy drag show. And she's been in on, on it a couple of times. She's super funny, but yeah, it's just like, there's, there's, there's more than I can name. And there's so many bisexual comics. There's so many, God, now I'm blanking out. Sam Gordon is bisexual. Um, Kiami, uh, Mariah is bisexual. Rachel Epstein. There's a bunch. There's, I mean, like if I could, I could just have a lineup of bisexual comics and do like book like three shows because a lot of people identify that way, you know, in a way that we never did back, back then. Like a lot of the bisexual people I knew growing up all, you know, transitioned to gay or, or bisexual was just an identity stop along the way. And a lot of the folks that I know who are bisexual are bisexual who are very heteronormative presenting, um, but they're very adamant that they have same sex attraction. And um, I'm like, Hell yeah. Add it, you know, come join, come over here. You know what I mean? Like we need the numbers, you know what I'm saying? Like make us some more bisexuals or whatever. But so you've been with your husband for a long time and he makes it into your act sometimes. Is there anything from home that's uh, (laughs) off limits on the stage? Why would you ask me a question like that? (laughs) (laughs) We have, we've been, this is our 21st year together. Um, and we met at Blake's. I picked him up on a Wednesday. So don't act like you can't do it. Don't act like you can't find the love of your life on a motherfucking Wednesday. You sassy ass Queens step them pussies up and go get your man on a Wednesday. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of what doesn't make it in the, uh, what, what used to not make it in the act were things like his mom is, uh, I love his mom. His mom is sweet slate, but she is a radicalized Trump supporter, been radicalized by Facebook and says all kinds of just r- ridiculous shit that I used to just not mention. And now she goes, in, she goes in the act. So I would say there's not much that doesn't go in. My rule has always been that uh, 
in the relationship, I'm the asshole most of the time. So when the jokes are told, I'm the asshole in the joke. You know what I'm saying? So I, I don't tell jokes that make him look bad. I tell jokes that I tell the truth, which makes me look bad. So, <laughs> I do. I do this one joke though recently where um, I say he bought me a weighted blanket for Christmas. And I do say, and that was confusing because I thought that's what you were, was a weight holding me down for my life's dream. And I've actually cut it because it's just not true. I mean, like my whole life takes place on his right titty. You know what I mean? Like, And you're pretty vocal. We talked about it a little bit today. You're pretty vocal about uh, LGBTQ rights, bullying of queer kids and other social issues. Is there anything that, you know, is no laughing matter that, uh, again, that, uh, you know, is there a line that you draw that you won't uh, cross? I find it incredibly reductive um, to, uh, I learned that word from Madonna, by the way. Um, she she called Lady Gaga reductive and I didn't know what it meant. And the person interviewing her was also like, what do you mean? And then Madonna was like, look it up and took a sip of tea. And I looked it up and it, it reductive, it's a very useful word. But um, uh, I find it reductive when straight comics talk about things like if they had a gay child, how they would beat the gay out of them, um, which I haven't heard in a very long time. But when I first started, Jesus Christ, if that was not the go, I, I do not know how many times I followed somebody on an open mic had just beaten to death the gay child that, you know what I mean? And it's like anything that makes gay people f- like less than in the in the eyes of the audience, I'm very opposed to. Um, what I've learned is, is that I'm not responsible for that. You know what I mean? Like if I follow somebody who does that. I'm going to comment on it, but if it happens and there's no way I can do anything, I'm just homophobia happens every day. I can't stop it. Um, I will say that I think that the biggest issue uh, with homophobia that more that I would love to hear more about and that I need to figure out how to talk more about um, using whatever platform I have is the stuff that's going on, like in places like Chechnya, where uh, in Poland, where gay people are being basically rounded up and attacked and they're being legislated out of existence, um, because that can happen here. When they talk about that, we're like a, a, a privileged class when the right talks about us like that. We are a class that exists only based on rights. You know what I'm saying? So it's like. We are a, a sodomy law that doesn't exist, an equality law that exists, a hate crime law that exists. You know what I'm saying? So these collection of laws go away, and then we are no longer a protected class. And we have to be a protected class because we are a minority, and we are such a small minority. It's weird that we talk about gay people so much in our society, and considering how few there really are. You know, what I mean? it's like, right. yeah. But I think that that's the biggest thing. I think that like looking at these countries where they are stripping away gay rights uh, little by little um, and looking into our own future. Uh, if, if Biden doesn't win the election and we get another four years of uh, right-wing um, totalitarian fascist regime, they're going to be coming after us more. And they've been setting that all up. Um, that's what Mike Pence is busy doing. You know what I'm saying? It's like, and there's these court appointments. They're about to do a big push for religious freedom. And religious freedom means I want the right to discriminate against gay people, unwed mothers. I don't know how far they're going to take it, but you know, it's like, I, that's why I can't watch that under his eye, whatever that handmaid's tale shit too real. You know what I mean? Like the only gay character they had in the first few episodes was one with a bag over his head where he was hung. I'm like, I can't watch this show. Oh God. All the gay people are already dead. What? You know, it's like, Jesus, that needs to be in our conversation almost on a daily basis as queer people. Right. What's happening in these other countries? What can we do to help that? And what can we do to prevent that from coming here? Is there, how would you define your brand of, of comedy? Private selection is private selection brand. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I feel like that I am, I guess what I'm, I don't get a lot of that. Like I've never had anyone like write a review of my comedy kind of thing. So I don't, I would love, that's what I would reference right now. I'd be like, I've been called a reverend. I'm high energy. I think as a comic, I'm engaging. Um, and I'm honest and vulnerable. So I tell on myself a lot and I think that's what people like. My gayness is something that I talk about in my act, but my gayness is just like, if I was straight, I would still be doing the same. I'd still be, I would think I would still be the same person, but the way I talk about pain and I, I don't, I don't, there used to be a lot more 
you know, like revealing I'm gay, you know, <laughs> and now for my third joke, I'm gay or whatever. Right. But, uh, <laughs> which that's actually a good like a for slow my third joke. I'm gay. But, uh, yeah, exactly. Like a slow reveal. And, and that came from a lesbian comic who is very like lipstick, you know, heteronormative female presenting gave me that advice. When I started, she was like, when, when the crowd over, completely and then tell them you're gay and uh that works great for her but when i tried it it was just like i was like oh why would i talk about anything other than being gay or whatever you know what i mean but i think my my brand of comedy is i think it's i think it's that honest and the telling on yourself i think that there's a lot of people who they do a lot of stuff from day to day that they don't admit to and i'm somebody up there who's like yeah i I, uh I eat Taco Bell for four meals today or whatever it is that whatever terrible thing I've done. Um, and I think that, I think that comes across. I think we're, we're gay men. We always do stuff we don't talk about. Yeah, exactly. But that's the thing is that I'm actually trying to kind of be that, be where I'm talking about it. You know, of course I'm also a gay man of a certain age. So it's not like I'm in my twenties and you know, what Ian was doing in his twenties would be a whole different stage act. You know what I'm saying? It would be, Ooh, Oh no, you're right. You you and I are the same age, so I I I am with you on that. (laughs) So I'm more of in like the family life kind of situation right now, but um, but yeah, I think I think that's fair. Um, I definitely I really focus on whatever is I'm talking about, trying to make it as funny as possible. So it's like if I'm just telling you a story about something that happened to me today, I have taken that story. And looked at it 50 different ways to figure out how many punchlines I can put. Like, you're not going to come see me and not laugh. There's none of that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't, I'm not a message comic. I'm not going to be like, give it up for the troops. I'm not going to be like, give it up for Kamala here. I'm not doing any of that. You know, you, you already, you already believe in shit. You don't need to know what I believe in. You know, it's like, I'm literally here to make you laugh. Right. Um, you might give it up for grilled cheese, but yeah. Uh, Right. Absolutely. And I do like to make fun of straight people too. Don't get me wrong. I mean, <laughs> well, my last question for you is where can people find you and follow you and, and catch your comedy? Um, you can find me online at, on Twitter and Instagram at a bear comedian. Um, my Facebook, I just have a production page for my um, standup called hot Mike comedy. In terms of like what I'm doing, under normal circumstances, I'd say, oh, catch me here every week. Uh, I will be on a lot of the Skull shows that the Laughing Skull is producing for the next little while. Um, I'm the booker for the Laughing Skull. I don't know if that that was different. That wasn't the case when I last was on this. I started working for the Skull, but I've taken over as the booker. And then I'm I don't have any plans to start back any of my comedy like Sue Baby Cheese or any of that until after 2021. Like so, I'm like basically like spring of next year, I think. Um, because I'm still, I'm still waiting to hear like, like I'm, my thing is, I think after the election, it's all of a sudden going to be like, oh, COVID, COVID, COVID. You know what I mean? Like they're going to get serious about it, and we're finally going to get rid of it. And but in the meantime, where it's like, well, who knows? It could be, it could be next July before we're back to normal. It could be next March or whatever. But but yeah, find me online. Um, I do have my podcast, Straight People, which is rebooting. It should be back up in November. I'm recording now, uh, and it is STR, the number eight, PPL, like straight people, um, like, you know, like shorthand or whatever. Um, and it should be pretty fun. I'm actually changing my format. I'm going down to 20 minutes. I'm going to do a 15-minute interview with somebody, and I'm going to do a five-minute weekly uh, this week in straights. So I'm going to be doing straight news, all the straight news that straight people need to know about themselves because they're straight, you know? So... <laughs> I like it. I like it. So that's coming in, uh, in November, you think? Yeah, November. Well, thank you so much, Ian. And thanks to everyone out there for listening. Subscribe to Podcast Q and your favorite podcast player to keep up with new episodes. And follow us at theqatl.com. And we'll see you soon with a new episode. Yay!